Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. Lord Jesus, we thank you that you have come uh, and you are still coming through us to proclaim the way the world, the way the kingdom really works. And I pray that you would open our hearts and minds to keep receiving that. None of us have done it perfectly, um, and none of us will in this life, but we thank you that we have a great hope, and that we have a great hope to confer and a blessing to confer upon people, regardless of our station or our reality, Lord. I pray that you bless us today in the hearing of your word. Bless our children as they continue to learn what it means to be made for worship. The words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, my strength and my redeemer. Amen. For the next three weeks, uh, the lectionary actually puts us in what's called Jesus' Sermon on the Plain in Luke 6. So if you're hankering for a series, here it is. You get one. What might initially stand out, though, is that it sounds a lot like the Sermon on the Mount. And we may not, which is in Matthew 5, and we may not really know that there's a, there's a distinction between the two. They're in two different locations. And in short, this means that Jesus probably spoke publicly about these things, these themes, multiple times in at least two different regions and among different audiences, even though primarily they're directed toward his own disciples. Luke, the historian, happens to get from his interviewees a shorter length sermon in this one, and the scope is different. Uh, we not only get the beatitude blessings in Luke, but we also have the contrasting woes. So Jesus takes on the tone, in particular, of, the, of a prophet. Unlike Matthew's account, Luke's poor and hungry are simply poor and hungry. They're not poor in spirit or hungering after righteousness, and this is important. Think of it this way. It's like having two eyes to see a fuller perspective. We have these two witnesses uh, to understand more fully the breadth of Jesus' teaching. And, of course, beneath that is that Jesus is probably talking to two different groups of people, maybe even different demographics, so to speak. Um, So Luke's language doesn't actually allow us to over-spiritualize this new order that's breaking in through Jesus. But Matthew's account doesn't allow us to over-naturalize it. It's interesting. And I'll talk about that more in a bit. Let me say something really quickly about the background of this sermon, which is really important. Luke tells us in chapter 5, uh, verse 17, that Israel's leaders are coming from every village of Galilee and Judea and from Jerusalem itself to see and hear Jesus. These are scribes and Pharisees and teachers of the law. And we find out that they are there to police him. They're there, and in their eyes, Jesus can do nothing right even when he heals, even when he's doing the miraculous. From their perspective, he's simply breaking all the rules. They are amazed but annoyed. They are fascinated, but they are fearful of what's going on here. So in chapter 5, Jesus heals a paralyzed man. But first he says, your sins are forgiven. His intent is to not only bless the man's body, but to bless his soul. This is a pattern. It's an important pattern in the Gospels. When Jesus interacts with hurting people, he is just as concerned about their moral struggle as he is about their physical struggle. We need not divide those. For Jesus, the body and soul are a unity. The reverse of that has been an ongoing misunderstanding or ignorance or heresy even that has persisted even from the first century. The body and the soul are indeed a unity. For Jesus, the authority and responsibility to forgive and to heal belong together, the whole person. 
But the Pharisees, when he says this bit about forgiveness, their heads explode, right? Jesus also recruits probably the worst person imaginable to be one of his disciples. It's a tax collector named Levi or Matthew. Most tax men in that day were swindlers. They were viewed as traitors of Israel. They were collecting for Rome. Why would Jesus do this? Why would he, he ask someone like this to follow him? And he simply said, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. Now bear in mind, Matthew was not physically sick, was he? Jesus said, I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. There you go. The moral and the physical. Sort of in Jesus' mind together. Matthew's life is a kind of sickness for which Jesus is the healer. Matthew, Levi is sick inside his own story. The challenge to Jesus goes on and on as we're leading up to this sermon. His new followers aren't fasting like, their, like the disciples of the Pharisees. Why aren't they doing that? Even John's disciples are fasting. We find out Jesus believes that fasting is still very important. But for him, some old rules, so to speak, don't apply to the new situation of his leadership, of his time, and of his disciples. His ministry is new wine, not meant for old wineskins, he will say. There it is, another confrontation. And then, and Luke is intentionally making sure we see this buildup. Then Jesus messes with the Sabbath. And the Sabbath was guarded in every imaginable way, right? He and his disciples, they're walking through a field, they're plucking and they're munching wheat. And they say, there he is, breaking Sabbath laws again. But what's worse, it seems like on the same day, he heals a man's withered hand in the synagogue. In the context of all the Sabbath observances, and here's Jesus doing this work of healing. My favorite moment is in Chapter 6, verse 10, it reads, And after looking around at them, at them all, he said to the man, Stretch out your hand. And he did so, and the, his hand was restored. Why do I love that so much? Because Jesus gives them that slow look around stare. Like, really? Watch this. I, that's my sanctified imagination. Honey. I like it. Luke then tells us, but they were filled with fury and discussed with one another what they might do to Jesus. At this point, they're ready to hurt him. What is Luke really trying to do here? He's ensuring that we see in Jesus' own ministry of healing and of help and gathering the conflict he was facing with Israel and her ministry, so to speak, is significant. This takes us right up to the point when Jesus calls new leadership for Israel around himself. So shortly before our reading today, Jesus pulls two, or 12 in particular to himself. Clearly he must, right? Change must be radical. Israel, at least according to their current leaders, has lost a sense of their calling and their vocation, lost the heart of God, lost the ability to see people the way God sees them. So let me pause for a moment and talk about the change generally. Right? Jesus is bringing a significant confrontation and change. Imagine with me an XY axis. You know, the one that starts here uh, together and you got X and you got Y, right? So imagine that with me. It's, it's a graph about change. And going out horizontally is the length of time. This is a long time. Short time, long time. And then going up vertically is the degree of difficulty. Not that hard, really hard. Time, difficulty. And so you might imagine some things take more time to change, and some things are simply more difficult to change. But time and difficulty 
are often related, aren't they? For me in particular, if it takes longer, it tends to get more difficult. Or if something's very difficult, it tends to take us longer. So they're related. When I'm thinking about a specific change that I'm supposed to affect or a project that I'm working on, I try to actually locate it on this graph. So I have some sense, right, Jesus said count the cost. So I try to have some sense of how hard is this going to be and how long is it going to take. My wife will tell you that it always takes longer than I think it's going to take. And you know what? She's right. It's true. (laughs) Heather's not surprised. Not very far up or over is simply just changing your mind, right? An everyday decision. I'll have the chicken. No, actually, I'll have the beef. Oh, you have a veggie option? I'll have that instead. No, wait, the chicken, right? We can change our, our, our minds pretty rapidly. It's not that hard. It doesn't take that long. But a change of opinion, like how you feel and think about something, takes a little bit longer, right? And it's a little bit harder to change. It'll generally require more information, Maybe an experience or some emotion to go under it to really change how you think about something, not just what you want in the moment or what you're willing to accept in the moment. Does this make sense? No? All right, we start over. Okay, length of time, degree of difficulty. Even more time and effort is required to change your behavior or your beliefs, right? Sometimes, though, a change in behavior is easier than a change in beliefs. You can just start doing things differently. You can determine to do them. Uh, because your beliefs are your whole network, your whole hierarchy of opinions and, and, and your values. So sometimes we just decide to reorder our lives with the expectation that our beliefs will follow suit. In some ways, our worship is meant to keep orienting us to a way of living so that hopefully aspects of our belief, though they sometimes are weaker, sometimes are stronger, are following in many ways what our bodies are doing. Because why? Our bodies and our souls are a unity. And our minds... They all belong together. So, either way, beliefs upon which we base our lives tend to be way harder and take way longer to change than just one opinion. That's because beliefs don't just live in us. We live in them. We live in them. And we're still just talking about personal change at this point. We live in an ecosystem of belief very often. But this is where the personal and the social or cultural actually intersect, where beliefs and behavior and language create culture. And I want you to stay in the mind of what Jesus is dealing with, with the people of Israel at the time, and with his disciples in particular. Culture is harder to change. Much harder. It's hard to change the culture of your family. Or just your immediate team that you're on or in business. It's very difficult to do that. That, Very often that's why it's easier to just start fresh than to change anything, right? But of course... Further out and up, taking more time and with much greater difficulty is where broader institutional and societal change belongs. Much harder, much longer, more difficult, right? Why am I bringing this up? Even while Jesus was out there healing bodies, miraculously, he's forgiving sins, which is a deep encouragement. He's confronting coercive religion. Even while he's out there doing that, he knew that his ministry would have to begin at the nearest coordinates where time and difficulty intersect. Jesus is going to be able to give himself to people, to 12, to begin to help them change in their thinking and their opinions, even change their minds in a moment, and hopefully through them to change culture. Jesus has nothing short of a change in the whole known world in mind. But at this moment, he called 12 men to himself, but with all of Israel at heart. 
and through Israel and all the world he intends to affect change, beginning with them. After praying all night, Jesus selects the 12 disciples and calls them apostles. They're meant to be representatives of the 12 tribes of Israel, to be sent in the name of the kingdom of God. They are an inner circle for training and for commissioning for change. But as he trains them, there is an outer circle, always, that's within earshot, whose opinions, at the very least, are being challenged. They're being confronted. Jesus shows us that challenging and changing the culture is going to require far more than events, even miraculous ones, and far more than moral instruction. We wish that's all it took. Instead, it would take three years of intentional care and challenge among 12 people. Really, 11. One wasn't going to go the distance. He was already helping himself to the money. It will take giving his life to these men, but also, as it turns out, giving his life for them. Even when his own suffering and death seem to create in this moment a 180 in their belief, all is lost, right? And we find out that he had already built a culture among them upon which, after weathering his death and after celebrating his resurrection, they could begin to spread that culture. They would recall what he said and what he did. The very culture that he articulates in the challenging language of this sermon on the plain. In short, to turn the world upside down, Jesus would have to turn their world upside down first. They left their fishing nets and they left their tax booths in an instant. But the rest of the change was going to require way more than three years. It was going to require of them a lifetime. And it would require doing it together. This is the culture of change. This is the pattern that Jesus is building. The community. Nothing less for Jesus than a new Israel. And nothing more at this moment than 12 men. And many others in earshot. He's demonstrating to them what the new kingdom looks like. And after Jesus calls the twelve, he calls them closer, and then he shakes the very ground they walk on. Again, within earshot of the crowd, he begins to challenge the fundamentals upon which the existing culture is built. The beliefs in which they live. He speaks not only to the values that live in them, but the values in which they live. And he begins with who God blesses and who God warns. And this was a lot of what people were trading in every day the way they interacted with one another, the way they thought of themselves. And these blessings and woes are not prescriptive. This is important. They are prophetic, and I think they're pastoral. They certainly aren't telling the audience, you should be poor and not rich. That would be actually to trivialize the actual weight and pain of poverty, right? Especially for those who don't choose it. Jesus is not doing this, although the church at times has misunderstood it. The contrast here between poor and rich, between blessing and woe, is really about who hopes in what, how they get there, and what it ultimately amounts to. It's about who, based on the real conditions of their lives, find themselves either consigned to greater hope than the present circumstances they're in, or those who are content with a lavish but limited now. The language of blessing here is, is interesting. Makarioi. It's actually a bit tricky to translate, but it seems actually most likely that Jesus isn't declaring the poor happy or blessed, as if to say, I know you think you're miserable, but you're really blessed, just wait and see. 
Instead, he's actually ministering to them by saying this. He's communicating, he's conferring blessing to on the poor and the downcast, though they've heard the opposite their whole lives. They've been otherwise told they're cursed in their circumstances by God because they or someone else failed miserably in God's eyes. But here's God in the flesh saying, I see you and I bless you. I think paraphrasing them can be helpful toward explaining this point I'm trying to make. Jesus says in verse 20, again, sort of putting the sermon inside the words. I bless you who have no possibility of relying on money or possessions or status in this life. I give you the kingdom. I bless you who experience real hunger in this life. You who feel your poverty. I promise you deeper satisfaction. I bless you who agonize and have nothing with which to sweep your pain under the rug in this life. I promise you will have joy. I bless you who will have the courage to proclaim the truth even when it's unpopular and actually makes your life worse. I bless you. Rejoice even in the moment of rejection. God is and will be your reward. Jesus is saying that God most certainly sees and loves and blesses those who find themselves in pitiful and even precarious situations. In this imbalance of the world and uh, in all its compromised justice, where common humanity so easily and always has just carved people up and separated people by virtually every possible difference and degree. Alienating people instead of caring for them. What's worse, people and the cultures we make, we've just kind of backfilled these ideas of these differences and these values uh, with religious justification. That's what's going on here. Presuming to see what God sees. Well, there's a reason why you're poor. We We all have a staggering capacity to ratify and to reward what we most desire, even the systems we're in when they work for us. It's not just them, it's also us. We do this. And it's this very impulse of pride and self-service that God resists and challenges. Not only for those that it obviously damages systemically, but even for those who are doing the damage. And I say that, and I want to help you think again about these woes as warnings, as actually words of love and calling. But here's a paraphrase of these. I'm warning those of you whose wealth is your hope. If it means that much to you, it's the best you're going to have in the long run. I'm warning those of you who can't identify with real hunger and need in this life, you will find emptiness after all. I'm warning you who paper over pain with distraction and entertainment and mocking laughter, you will not escape the tears forever. And I'm warning you who swim in man's approval and believe the flattery, it will be proven a fraud and a lie, and a disappointment. And I just want to tell you this, there is no more radical grace than for God to separate His functional enemies from their ignorance, and from their ideology, and from their idols. That is a kindness. It's hard to hear, but it comes in love. And in this sense, a prophetic woe is a kindness. He does it for others, but He also does it for them. Jesus does. These kinds of blessings and woes are a constant motif in the Old Testament tradition. Why? Because God loves Israel. And this is the purpose that they serve, to affirm humility and to warn against pride. This is the way the world really works. 
So in summary, Jesus isn't idealizing. He isn't sanctifying poverty. He's not saying every rich or happy and and popular person is irreversibly doomed. He's not carving up society. But he is turning the world right side up. He's prophetically and even pastorally declaring, this is the way the kingdom works. We will receive it. Again, this prophetic tradition was constantly declaring a great reversal. As I mentioned before, Israel's own national economic system that could get out of sorts, it was called to upend itself every seven years and to, and to end and to cancel debt. They would observe the Jubilee every 50 years, which is a radical forgiveness of debt, freedom from indentured servanthood, a return of lost land and possessions. And it was a leveling of class so that everyone belongs and is blessed without qualification. So that everyone is blessed and so that everyone escapes the subtle devices of their own losses or their own successes. Jubilee comes from the Hebrew word yovel, a trumpet blast of freedom. Jesus' prophetic and pastoral ministry is that trumpet blast for all and for all time. We hear it differently, but its purpose is the same for all. This value is why, you know, I would say that we're even right now trying to build our, our staff team in such a way that we free Heather up to help us be much more mindful of the ways in which we move toward the community, can be more engaged in the needs that are there. Not to talk about it, not to funnel, you know, just redirect our funds toward needs, but to actually create a community whereby we have more bridges to build community with those who experience hunger and poverty and other things in ways we can never imagine. So practically speaking, so that this community can move toward these very ethics. In closing, this Sermon on the Plain reminds us that the kingdom is still about hoping, not having. Orienting our lives and all that we affect to be transformed over much time. And yes, through much difficulty. The teaching of the Beatitudes, they don't trivialize the present, as I said, but they do transfigure it in the alien light of this coming kingdom. That's what we're called to see, as hard as it might be to hear at times. Luke doesn't qualify the Beatitudes with the same spiritual language as Matthew, as I said, but it's as impossible to separate them from the spiritual here as it is to assume Jesus cared only about the physical and the social and economic circumstances, the people to whom he was ministering. It's about our souls. It's about our very lives. It's about our whole person. Poverty and riches are, are about the hands. They're about the heart. Life is truly about body and soul, mind and spirit. And Jesus came to bless and to liberate the whole of us. Each of us and all of us together. If Jesus is Lord, he's always going to train his disciples to see the world in this alien light but not through eloquent generalities and platitudes, not even through fiery confrontations with our enemies, not even through miracles. He's going to train them and us to see people, to really see them, and to be trained in these ways in heart and mind over time. But first, we must really see ourselves through the eyes of our Creator and Redeemer who loves us enough to graciously deconstruct our values and rebuild them around the kingdom. And that is hard and holy work, right? The monk and mystic Thomas Merton once said, when you ask of Scripture what it has to say to you, it replies, who are you?
Who are you? He's capturing there the sense in which we go to Scripture, feeling that we're very clear on ourselves. But maybe we're not. And maybe that's the question. Who are you? And then the Scriptures say, let me tell you. And I think this Sermon on the Plain is doing just that, allowing us to see and to begin where we really are, whether poor or rich, existing beliefs in us and us in them. Jesus is calling us to join the disciples He called to fulfill Israel's ancient destiny and to confer upon the world the blessing God has promised. Do you think of yourself and the church that way? Called to confer the blessing that God feels God has enacted and God has secured for the world. If we'll open to Him afresh, renew our commitment to the path He promised, it would be long and hard, the Spirit of the Lord will be our strength. And the new community of the twelve that actually gathered here, more than twelve at 2104 Old Buncombe Road, will be our help. And I wonder, do we believe it? Lord, help us to believe it. We thank You that You love us without qualification. And even as we hear hard words, challenging words, and even as we feel the degree of difficulty, the length of time it takes for us to change, even in the small things about ourselves, we thank you that because you have called us to do it, you are faithful to complete that work in us. We're hanging everything on that promise. We thank you for your promises, that they are yes and they are amen. In the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, amen.